Hey students, welcome back for the beginning of unit three, kicking it off with chapter six on memory. Let's get started with a mindful moment. For this week's mindful moment, find a posture or a position that's comfortable for you. And we're going to use our learning on memory for today's mindful moment. Think about a place that you visited or a happy memory and really imagine that physical space. Try to let yourself be immersed back into that moment. Do try to pick a moment that is safe emotionally and physically for you and let yourself be fully present there. As you're in that memory, in that special place, think about the ground that's underneath your feet there. What's it like? Is it grass? Is it sand? Is it water? Is it rock? Or maybe it's open sky under your feet. What's the weather like in that space? Is it cold, windy, warm? Is it snowing, raining? Now take a moment to let yourself recognize any smells, any scents that may be present in that space. And let yourself be filled up with that memory. Now as you begin taking some deep breaths, breathing into your stomach and exhaling slowly through your mouth, let yourself feel gratitude for that place and for the memory of that place. What is memory? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever had to try and explain it to somebody? How do we put words to describing what memory is? Sometimes it's a little bit easier to start with what memories are. There are things that you remember from the past. But even that is kind of using the definition of the word to describe itself. So here's what psychology says. Memory is an active system of the brain that receives the information from the senses, puts that information into a usable form, organizes it as it stores it away, and retrieves the information from storage. Memory is quite a bit more complicated than we give it credit for most of the time. We don't even really think about it. You just remember things and seem to forget others. But memory is a highly complex system. And you'll remember that in chapter three, when we discussed sensation and perception, that all of the sensory information you take in has to be translated, essentially. It has to be translated into neural impulses that the brain can understand. So what memory does is take information from the senses, makes it usable, organizes it as it stores it away, And then later on, when you need that memory, that information, memory's job is to pull it out of the reserves and bring it back into your conscious awareness. 
One of the major functions of memory is encoding. This is a special set of mental operations that we perform on sensory information to convert the information into a form that is usable in the brain's storage systems. It's step two of the memory process. Step one was get the info. Step two is make it usable. The process of making it usable is called encoding. Now, step three is storage. It's exactly what it sounds like, holding on to information for some period of time. We'll get into more of that later on. And then retrieval. That's getting it back when you need it. Getting information that was in storage into a form that can be used. Let's get a quick overview of the three-stage process of memory. We'll get a quick overview of this, and we will get deeper into each of these three processes throughout today's lecture. So first, a sensory event occurs. You are hearing the sound of my voice. That information is being encoded. Remember, that's our little translation piece. It's then going to your sensory memory. This is where information can be lost within a second or so. This is really just being able to make sense of the visual environment around you or the auditory information you're taking in. We'll get into that in a little bit. If there's enough selective attention given to that sensory memory, it enters your short-term memory. This is where unrehearsed information can live for about 15 to 30 seconds. So here's a scenario. Somebody gives you their phone number. They give you all seven digits. That auditory information is received, encoded, taken into your sensory memory. And because it's important information to you, you are giving selective attention to it. And you have about 15 to 30 seconds before those seven digits are forgotten, before they're lost on you. But this phone number is really important to you. So here's where the third stage of memory processing comes in. You're going to repeat that number to yourself over and over again. You're going to rehearse it. And that will help it be converted into your long-term memory, where you can later retrieve that number when you go to make that phone call. In long-term memory, information can be retained indefinitely, although some memories are easier or harder to retrieve than others are. Let's look now at some of the different models of memory. First is the information processing model. This assumes the processing of information from memory storage is similar to a way a computer processes information. There's those three stages, and it's kind of a big picture view of memory. There's quite a bit of critique around comparing the human brain to a computer, because a computer doesn't have emotions or feelings, and it most certainly does not have hormones. So it's a little bit of a lost comparison. The brain is more complicated than just a computer. So while there is some validity to this argument, to this model of memory, there's also a lot of questioning and debate around it. The second model is the parallel distributed processing model. This is a model in which memory may... No, shoot.
Another critique of the information processing model is that those three stages of memory we identified a moment ago aren't really stages. They're more so elements in a sequence of events. So while many aspects of memory formation may allow for a series of steps or stages, there are others that see memory as a simultaneous process, many things occurring at one time. This also involves the creation and storage of memories taking place across a series of mental networks that are stretched, in a manner of speaking, across the brain. Simultaneous processing does allow for us to retrieve many different aspects of memory. Think back to the mindful moment we had at the beginning of today's lecture. There were different aspects to those memories that you were asked to recall. There were olfaction aspects, there were tactile aspects, and we didn't even get into any thoughts or feelings that you may have about that memory or that are embedded that are part of that memory. So having this simultaneous processing allows for all of those elements to be processed much faster. This model of memory, this simultaneous processing, is known as the parallel distributed processing model. It states that memory processes are proposed to take place at the same time over a large network of neural connections. In the levels of processing model, it's assumed that information is more deeply processed, processing according to its meaning rather than just the sound of the physical characteristic of the word or words, and that things will be remembered more efficiently for a longer period of time. The strength and duration of memory in the levels of processing model increases as the level of processing deepens. Let's dive deeper into the information processing model. That overview that was given at the beginning of the lecture with the three stages, that is part of the information processing model. So the first stop is sensory memory. This is the first system in the process of memory according to this model, where raw information from the senses is held for a very brief period of time, just enough for you to be able to have a cohesive sense of the visual world around you, of the tactile world around you, of the auditory world around you. So that sensory information is taken in, then it's encoded into the sensory memory as a neural message in the nervous system. And this is also where we get the double take phenomenon. So this is where visual data is received by the eyes, but it takes an extra few milliseconds for the brain to process what you just saw. So if you've ever been to a beach and there was a person wearing a very skin-toned bathing suit, you may have done a double take because for a split second there, your brain thought that person was completely nude, that they weren't wearing anything. So to make sure you were getting the ac accurate information, your brain said, whoa, go check that out one more time. So you did and you realized, oh, they're just wearing a, a flesh-toned bathing suit. There's two types of sensory memory, echoic and iconic. Echoic has the word echo in it, and it's our auditory sensory system. 
Your echoic memory only lasts for a few seconds, so you're able to string sentences and words together in order to understand what is being said. Your echoic memory is very active right now as you're listening to this lecture. And then iconic memory has the word icon in it. And an icon can be an image of something. So it's our visual sensory memory. And it lasts for only a fraction of a second. Because think about the amount of visual stimulus that exists in our world. And your brain has to selectively process through each of those images very quickly. So it's very fast in and out. If it's not necessary, get rid of it. We've got other stuff to do. The sensory memory system is responsible not only for the double take phenomenon, but and this is happening so much with our Zoom calls these days because we're all on Zoom so much or whatever video conferencing service you use. But of the what phenomenon, this is where your brain didn't interpret the auditory information immediately. Or maybe you misheard or misunderstood what somebody said. Oh, I thought you said Friday instead of Thursday or something to that effect. Your echoic sensory memory only lasts two to four seconds. And again, it's really just there so you can string things together and make sense out of it, have a cohesive story. It allows us to interpret speech into phrases. So we hold on to incoming auditory information long enough just for the brain to determine whether or not higher processing is needed. Do I really need to pay attention to every single auditory stimulus that I hear? No. This again, referencing back to sensory sensation and perception, that you tune out the sound of the air conditioning, or if we were in class together, you would tune out the hum of the projector because you don't need that information that doesn't really help you in any way. If that auditory information were to change, then selective attention kicks in. Your brain says, ooh, a change in the environment. We need to see what's going on because the brain's number one job is to survive. So it wants to know about all of those changes so that it can assess whether or not it needs to pay more attention to ensure its own survival. In the information processing model, once we've gone through our sensory memory, if we do decide to pay more attention to that input we have, it goes to our short-term memory. This is the memory system in which information is held for 15 to 30 seconds while it's being used. You can help these memories stick around longer through maintenance rehearsal or practicing. A attractive person gives you their phone number. You don't want to forget that. You're going to say those numbers over and over in your head until you are sure that you remember them. Another great example of this is that there was a song, I think from the 80s or something, that was the digits of a phone number. And you may have heard it. It goes something like this. 8675309. That's how I remember all phone numbers these days. If I forgot my phone at home so I can't just enter it right away, I use that little jingle and I sing it over and over in my head so I can remember that number. So encoding is primarily through auditory stimuli, although some 
are iconic, a visual sketchpad of sorts. You may take mental notes about what exactly that item looks like or what that person looks like so you can reference it later. And here's that term selective attention again. It's our ability to focus on only one stimulus from among all of the other sensory input that we're getting. So only a stimulus that is important enough will make it to be consciously analyzed for meaning in our short-term memory. And the info evaluated by our pre-analysis is accomplished by the attention centers of the brainstem. Now what's really interesting in short-term memory it's called the cocktail party effect. You may have had this happen to you. You're in a really crowded room or maybe you're at a really hopping party or something. And I don't even know if anyone says that anymore, a hopping party. You know what I mean? It's a good party. Lots of people are there. It's noisy. And out of nowhere, you hear your name, even though it's like across the room and you're like, how on earth did I hear that? Do I have supersonic hearing? No, your brain just knows that it's supposed to pay attention to you. So if someone's talking about you, you want to know about that. And your brain is absolutely going to use some of its reserves to be able to pay attention to whatever they're talking about. Traceman had some ideas. His theory was this two-stage process in short-term memory. Stage one is that incoming stimuli and sensory memory are filtered on the basis of simply physical characteristics. So less signal strength or attenuation is the psychological term is given to unselected stimuli and attenuated stimuli, the ones we're really paying attention to, are less important. And only stimuli that meet a certain threshold are processed. So there has to be a certain amount of signal strength. The signal has to be strong enough, kind of like with our action potentials. The signal has to be strong enough for that process to be activated. Let's talk now about working memory. Working memory is different than short-term memory. Your working memory is an active system because memory itself is an active system. And your working memory processes information present within a short-term memory. So it's comprised of three interrelated systems. First is the central executive. It controls and coordinates the other two systems, which are the visual-spatial, that's your visual sketch pad, and the phonological loop, which is like an auditory recorder. So here's the mental image to conjure up for working memory. You have an executive sitting at a desk with an audio recorder and a sketch pad. The executive controls the audio recorder and the sketch pad. So the central executive aspect of your working memory controls and coordinates your visual sketch pad and your auditory recording. Short-term and working memory work together. Their capacity is between four to seven items. So a phone number, um, an account access code when you get locked out, um, and it can be extended with tricks like chunking or associating a song or a, a little jingle, like my 1980s little phone jingle that I remember. Um, but there's a really great TED Talk. This woman, I cannot remember her name. I'll see if I can find it for you. 
But this woman talks about how all of her different passwords and all of her different bank account codes have a different jingle that goes with them. So like her ATM card, she wants to be mindful about not spending too much money. So she made the jingle for her ATM card, the little jingle from Jaws, the movie Jaws. You know, the one with the shark that eats everybody gave sharks a really bad reputation. But the little jingle is pretty simple. It's just two notes. Dun, 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 dun. So she made her little pin code to that jingle. One, two, three, four. And that helped her remember. She did the same for all of her different accounts. And chunking is a strategy where if you have a series of numbers longer than seven digits, example, your social security number, if you have one, is longer than seven digits. It's hard for your brain to hold on to that one. So they chunk it into sections, three digits, then two digits, then four digits. And as long as your brain can remember the order of those digits, it's much easier to remember each numeral, each digit within that sequence, because you've chunked them, three, two, and four. So that's short-term and working memory. Long-term memory is one that research is really interested in, especially with neurological diseases like Alzheimer's that are really detrimental and dementia in which memory loss is a big aspect of that. And it's our long-term memory that tends to go first. So long-term memory is where information is placed to be kept pretty much permanently. We do lose some of our long-term memories over time Um, But we do retain quite a bit of them, and the human brain has the capacity to retain our long-term memories for the full duration of our lifespan. It's pretty much unlimited storage. The memories may be available, but not always accessible. Like how the housing market here in Sonoma County, there are lots of houses for sale. They're available, but with my bank account, they're not all accessible to me. Many long-term memories are encoded as images. Do you remember what the Mona Lisa looks like? Have you ever seen it in real life before? Or have you just seen a picture of it in a textbook or in a Google search? So much of our long-term memory is iconic. It's image-based. But what's fascinating about memory is that there is a strong association with our olfaction, our olfactory sense. So some of our memories have a strong scent component to them as well. So an example of how our olfaction plays into our long-term memory. The mindful moment for this week is to visit a happy memory or a physical space that you've had a really positive experience in. For me, the image that always comes to mind is one of my favorite places in all the world, Kailua Beach Park in Oahu, Hawaii. And I realized as another person was guiding me through this exercise a few years ago, I wonder if I like that memory because... (coughs) Shoot.
You may have some memories with a strong olfaction component to them. Maybe the one you thought of during today's mindful moment had a strong olfaction component. Here's an example from my own life. That mindful moment prompt I gathered from another clinician, another therapist, a few years ago. And as she was guiding me and my group through that mindful moment, it dawned on me that in that place, my favorite place being Kailua Beach Park in Oahu, Hawaii, I could remember the smell of plumeria on the wind. And as we were processing that experience later on, I thought, huh, I wonder if that memory is so powerful for me because of the plumeria smell in it, or if it's more so the memory's great and the plumeria is this kind of added bonus. And we actually talked about it for a while, and the truth is, we don't really know. But because there's so much rich sensory information in that memory, including that olfaction component, might be why that is such a positive place for me to visit mentally. So with working memory, we had that visual of the executive sitting at the desk working on something. He's got a sketch pad and he's got the audio recorder. That's working memory. Imagine the office that he's working in. Long-term memory is the storage room of filing cabinets. The short-term memory is like the desk where the worker is actively attending to things. So you can pull things out of the filing cabinet, bring them to your desk, and attend to them, attune to them. You can pull things out of long-term memory, bring them back into your short-term memory, where your working memory will then actively pay attention to it. There's different types of long-term memory. The first is non-declarative. To declare something means to state it out loud, to declare your love for somebody. You usually make a big show of it if you're declaring it, um, but it means to state something out loud. So non-declarative, we're not saying it out loud. There aren't really words associated. These are also called implicit memories. This is memory for skills, procedures, habits, conditioned responses, and emotional associations. Oftentimes these are not conscious but they're implied to exist because they affect conscious behavior. Things like knowing how to tie your shoes. You can do that without having to go through the whole little verse that we were all taught about the bunny and it goes around the tree and then down the hole. You don't have to say that to yourself anymore. You learned how to do it and you remember how to do it. You can just go about it while you're talking about something else or watching TV, having a phone call listening to a podcast lecture. Those are non-declarative memories. What's really interesting is that even Alzheimer's patients can retain non-declarative memories and skills cognitively, even though because of the aging process, they may lose the motor capacity to do that. And one of the things associated with Alzheimer's is neural degeneration. So they may have the cognitive processing of that skill to be able to tie their shoes, but they don't have the muscle capacity. The part of their brain, the association area for the motor cortex, that part may have been degenerated by the Alzheimer's disease itself. 
So they don't have the physical capacity, even though they know how to do it. It's a really interesting way that works out. So the second type of long-term memory is declarative. Declaring something, we're stating it. We're using our words. These are also called explicit memories. This is general knowledge and things that are conscious and known. So within declarative explicit memory, there are two types within that as well. First is semantic. This is general knowledge like language and information learned in formal education. So you're developing semantic memories by attending SRJC. And our semantic memories are relatively permanent, but you can kind of lose the way to this kind of memory. There is a little bit of use it or lose it to it. And then that second type of declarative memory is called episodic. This is personal information not readily available to others, such as daily activities and events. These represent episodes from your life. They're episodes that are important that get converted to the long-term memory. Remember, your brain is going to analyze and assess, do we need to keep it or can we get rid of it? So in your book and on the slides, there are some visual maps that help lay out the organizational strategy for long-term memory because it is a little bit complicated. So take the time to check those out as you review the text. So that is how we encode and store memories, but what happens when we need to retrieve one of those memories from our long-term memory to go pull it out of one of those mental filing cabinets? And do our memories stay preserved when we store them or are they subject to change? And if our memories are subject to change, should we really use eyewitness testimony in legal proceedings? Find out in our next episode. We'll see you then.